Hello again, and welcome to another episode of Otter Fishing with me, Trevor Topfer. Hello, and welcome again to the show. Thank you all for tuning in to Otter Fishing, the podcast brought to you by Otterfish. Uh, Otterfish is a very clever little platform that helps small to medium businesses run smarter Facebook ads. So if you are looking to grow your small to medium business or you currently run Facebook ads, I strongly encourage you to get over to otterfish.com and give that platform a try. You get 14 days for free and it's a very clever platform that will help you find the cheapest leads and the most uh, high performing content online. So give Otter Fishing a go. Uh, today on the show, I've got a very special guest. I've been looking forward to speaking with uh, this particular person for a number of weeks now. I, I met uh, our guest today uh, on another webinar and we hit it off. We had a great conversation and it just lent itself to bringing uh, the man in to our podcast. And I'm really excited to get to talk deeply about the future of tourism and what is happening in that space, not only here in New Zealand, but uh, globally, and the impact that COVID's had. And as we start to come out of this pandemic-y thing and we see businesses picking back up again, what the uh, the future looks like for industries like tourism. So without further ado, uh, let's bring on Mr. Dave Simmons, who is a partner at Jutes uh, who, and specialises in strategy and transformation. Dave works with brands like Juicy Rentals, Online Travel, Fisher & Paykel, and many more. He's a very busy man. So Dave, welcome to the show, and I appreciate you taking some time out of your schedule to uh, to join us, mate. Thanks very much, Trevor. Great to, great to be able to join you this afternoon. Awesome. Uh, look, we uh, we were talking uh, backstage a little bit about some of the things that are happening in the industry, and I'm really, uh, you know, one of the things that you said to me backstage, which I think is a great place to kick off, is how quickly uh, things seem to be rebounding. So just to set the scene, I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to figure out that uh, COVID kind of completely and utterly devastated the tourism industry. Uh, it brought many operators to a grinding halt, meant many operators had to change and completely pivot and focus on the domestic market. Uh, it was a shitstorm really here in New Zealand and I'm sure globally as well. Uh, but things seem to be opening back up again. Dave, talk to us a little bit about what's happening in your space right now. Yeah, thanks, Trevor. The um, travel and tourism has certainly got smashed around um, yeah, brutally. Uh, hard to comprehend the sort of pain and anguish that a lot of people in the industry have been through the last two years. Mm. Um, yeah, from being kind of a, a glamour boy industry, let's say glamour boy, glamour girl industry, uh, sort of up until pre-COVID, you know, grown exponentially year on year, largest export earner for New Zealand, um, to all of a sudden door shut. Uh, and not just shut literally from a border sense, but also from a sense of almost a political disengagement. Um, you know, almost tourism became a bit of a dirty word. So really, really challenging for the people in the sector who are all really, really passionate about, you know, sharing, you know, whether that's in New Zealand or Australia or the US, anyone involved in tourism is super passionate about sharing, you know, their destination with visitors. You know, they're in hosting, you know, hosting and sharing experiences. So super tough um, from a you know, mental well-being perspective and from a financial perspective. Mm. However, man, it's unbelievable. Things have changed uh, you know, on, on a dime in the last kind of two or three months. Um, you know, the businesses I'm involved with here in New Zealand um, are seeing a really rapid bounce um, 
from an inbound perspective, a little slow to start. Uh, you know, if I compare you know, New Zealand's preparedness um, for the borders reopening versus Australia, the Australian government, Tourism Australia, were, were quick out of the blocks to get campaigns in market. Mm-hmm. You know, um, someone like Juicy Reynolds, they're running at sort of 120% plus of um, pre-COVID levels already. Mm-hmm. New Zealand, we're not seeing quite the speed of recovery. Um, we're going to see a really, really strong um, season down in, in Otago with the ski season. No shadow of a doubt about that. Um, but the summer is looking really strong. Uh, your forward bookings um, for all operators that I speak to um, are, are looking really strong as you come November, December. December, January. And I think that's what, what that's talking to, Trevor, is a sort of a broader macro sort of um, trend in the industry, if you like, globally, is that, you know, what people learn from being locked down was they love actually getting out and exploring, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, being connected to people, the social connectedness, and actually probably even more than just social connection, but the sort of social awakening that comes from experiencing new places, reconnecting with people, friends and family, meeting new people. And so, yeah, this prediction that a lot of analysts had uh, that it was going to be a sort of five-year recovery cycle yeah, throw that out the window. This is kind of a, uh, the next 12 months is a readjustment. And I think, you know, 24 months we'll see, you know, somewhere in the order of what it was looking pre-COVID um, at a normalized level. So really rapid bounce back. So um, it sounds like there's a, a sentiment of positivity amongst the, the tourism sector at the moment, uh, with fingers crossed that it not only um, bounces back to what it was pre-COVID, but maybe even surpasses it. I think you're right, uh, you know, my interest and engagement with the tourism industry is really anecdotal and, and personal, but it does feel like, you know, Joni Mitchell said, you, we don't know what we've got till it's gone. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and, and I think that COVID kind of hit everybody in certain ways and, 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 and in certain parts of their life when suddenly all of these things that we've previously taken for granted, like for me personally, uh, my family's in Australia. So I took it for granted that I could go to yeah, Australia maybe. three or four times a year and see my family. And, uh, you know, I haven't seen most of them for a couple of years, two and a half years. And uh, we've, we've all, we're organising all of that stuff and it feels really positive to be able to come back. So there's that part of the tourism industry, which is that regular kind of day-to-day stuff. But I also feel like what you're suggesting is that people sort of went, hang on, I've been putting that holiday off. I've been putting that trip to New Zealand off or that trip to Australia off because I wanted to go there. And then suddenly I can't go. COVID's kind of completely removed that option from my life. Now that I've got it back, I'm not going to sit and plan it for the next few years. I'm going to go and fucking do it while I can. And that's bang on, Trevor. Uh, yeah, the um, I was at a tourism conference in Australia a couple of weeks ago, um, ATE, which is their big industry event. And what, what I was hearing from operators on the ground there is that, you know, particularly in the youth market, uh, they were just coming, you know, they, they were not kind of stopping to think. There was a lot of people kind of analysts sort of suggesting that it, it may be a slow kind of rebound. But these people are coming and not only are they coming, but they're spending more than ever. So they've had two years mm. of saving uh, for the trip that they're going to do 12, 18 months ago. And they're going, you know, sod it, we're going. Um, and it kind of reinforces this whole notion of the great resignation. There's definitely, you know, that's playing out. You can see that, you know, bigger average spend, longer uh, trip duration. Um, and that's that's with the lens into the Australian market. Um, it's come back really strongly. And as I say, people are coming and coming with big budgets uh, to um, make up for lost time a little bit. Well, that was kind of one of the unexpected byproducts of all this lockdown, right? We couldn't spend our money. Yeah. I, you know, um, thankfully, for the most part, and, and for those who were affected, I, 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 you know, we all feel for you. Uh, but for the most part, most of us kept our jobs, right? Um, if you weren't in one of these key sort of sectors that were really devastated by this, uh, we 
you know, took the fucking oh. laptop home, figured out how to log in and do Zoom calls and how that, how that all works and, uh, and and adapted and kept our jobs and kept the income coming in, but we couldn't do anything with it. Like, Absolutely. you know, I've got a mate who runs uh, one of the largest motorcycle dealerships in the country here, and he just had the best two years of his, of his, uh, of his career because... <laughs> People were looking for something to buy. I noticed that the uh, the classic car market, you know, those sorts of things, really had a had a bit of a renaissance and, and, and boosted up. But um, I imagine that that's now coming to a grinding halt with this idea that if I'm going to go and I'm going to go big because I don't know what next year looks like. I don't know what the year after that looks like. This might be my only chance in the next two, five, ten years to uh, to have that dream holiday or to get to that destination or go and see those friends, family, whatever it is. Um, so if there's this mad rush, like if we're back at 80% here in New Zealand and at 120% in areas like Australia, and I'm assuming in the US and other um, sort of high tourism uh, popular destinations, what should the operators on the ground there, what are you talking to them about preparing and trying to get their slice of this pie that's, that, that's coming back? Is there anything different? Is it back to the same sorts of strategies that they were using back in the day and they'll naturally get it because it's coming? Or are you talking to people about different tactics, different ways of getting their business out there, different ways of snagging and hooking this new uh, sort of gold rush of, of, yeah, of, of rejuvenated tourism? Super interesting um, question, Trevor, and there's a, sort of a number of layers to that. Um, you know, the big problem that everyone has got right now is staffing. Uh, mm. You know, you've got this, everyone's cut back staff over the last two years running really, really skeletal uh, in terms of resourcing. And then all of a sudden this wave's coming back uh, and uh, you, you can't, literally can't employ staff at the moment. You know, we've... Uh, uh, Juicy Reynolds, who I do a lot of work with, and uh, you know, seeking to employ sales consultants at the moment. Barely any applications. It was pre-COVID, you know, really attractive uh, brand, tourism brand, lots of people coming through. So resourcing is a massive, massive problem, uh, as well as the upward pressure on uh, your costs of employing people, which uh, your tourism is a low margin industry anyway. Mm. Uh, and this kind of inflation, you know, wage inflation is certainly causing problems. But you put that to one side. Uh, in terms of, um, you know, uh, hooking and snagging, uh, I like that phrase. I've never really thought about hooking and snagging tourists before, but um, nonetheless, um, um, uh, it does remind me of a, a story from Stewart Island. I was down there a few years ago and met some of the locals and uh, a conversation came up around, you know, female company. And uh, I said, um, you know, what, what do you do for female company? And uh, Stuart Island, he said, have you heard of the term tourist? So I think they uh, they, they might do hooking and snapping in a different way. <laughs> they, <laughs> they've, had a, they've had a drought that, that the rest of us can only dream about, that, you know. They certainly get their hooks out down there. But anyway, that aside, the, um, so yeah, listen, there's massive structural change in terms of distribution and and again um you know whether this at a macro kind of global industry sector yeah you know, some of the things we've seen um you know operators are pushing harder to get customers direct now uh you know, airlines are investing more and more in, in digital technology in fact you know i think uh, uh, our national carrier was quoted as saying we're a digital company that happens to fly aircraft uh, mm -hmm. and that sort of ethos is definitely driving a lot you know harder into you with aviation accommodation sectors your cruise operators will start pushing hard in that space as well so you've got some massive push uh, at a direct level um, you've got some massive structural change at, in the distribution channels themselves so your travel agents are under, under all sorts of pressure uh, you know but, you know, managed to survive somehow. And, and you know, I take my hat off to those guys. They were almost part of the forgotten sector, if you like, in terms of you know, travel agents. But, um, 
you know, they've survived, but you, they're under massive de- uh, pressure from a commission, commercial structure. So airlines, for example, removing front-end commissions, um, you know, which has probably represented 50% of a travel agent's um, income. Mm-hmm. So they're having to rethink their business models somewhat. You've got big legacy wholesalers uh, you know, in Europe and the US, et cetera, that work off these massive dinosaur kind of legacy, closed legacy platforms that have been running the same model for the last 30 years and are unable to change uh, a struggling to kind of uh, embrace kind of this changing dynamic. Um, so lots and lots of things happening throughout the play, but without any doubt as an operator, sort of the, the advice that, that I'm given is, you know, really think about how you can get your brand in front of the customer. A, understand who your customer is first and foremost. Way too many tourism businesses haven't spent the time to really understand that historically. You know, open the doors and, and tourists will come through and they'd get their customers and, and you know, make a bit of money at the bottom end of it. You know, we need to be more thoughtful about how we take our product, our brands and products to market now. Um, so start by understanding the customer and then start by, uh, the sort of next step is going, how do we engage? How do we hook that customer? Understanding who they are. What's the best way of getting in front of them? Um, how do we use our direct channels more smartly and thoughtfully? Um, what are cost-effective ways of getting in front of the customer? How do we build that funnel? You know, the social uh, channels, which uh, you're so kind of uh, expert on, um, Trevor, but how do we make sure we kind of bringing people through in a cost-effective way? And again, my observation, pre-COVID particularly, a lot of travel businesses, I'd say, will spend $1,000 a month on social media or will spend $50,000, whatever the scale of the business. But there wasn't a lot of really tight attribution associated with that. And where there was, it was almost a little horrifying because you'd start seeing cost of sales sort of, Mm. you know, 30, 40, 50% more in some instances. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's if they had good attribution, right? Uh, and so getting really, really focused around smart cost of acquisition, uh, co- yeah, uh, acquisition strategies, getting good measurement and data in place around measuring that. So you're not just spending a thousand bucks. For me, I hate the idea of having a budget of a thousand bucks a month. Uh, you know, it's more about, and, and I've kind of used this uh, analogy before, if you're working with travel agents as a tourism opera or tourism product let's say you don't say i'm only going to spend a thousand dollars a month with travel agents you keep spending because they're selling on your behalf mm-hmm. if you get a direct strategy set up well uh you should be able to do the same thing if your attribution is tight you should be able to rip that budget up and so long as your cost of sale is sitting tight under you know whatever is acceptable whether it's 10 percent, 15 percent, 20 percent take the cap off and keep running don't think of it as a cap budget so yeah there's lots of things in there, Trevor, in terms of understand the customer, be really thoughtful around you know how you get uh, your pro- uh, your product in front of the customer, and if you're pushing hard into that direct channel, think about making sure you're measuring that, getting that funnel coming through, getting good attribution, and use trade in a really complementary way. The the bit that kind of um, uh, I guess always annoys me is this kind of headlines that you see floating around. Um, in fact, it's even come out of Wellington at times where you go, we're paying commission, OTAs, you end up paying commission to you know, overseas companies. Well, the reality is, you know, commission to a travel agent or an OTA is simply the cost of acquisition. You know? They do a lot of work, they bring it in, they service mm-hmm. that customer. It's not a bad thing. And if you use it in a smart way to complement your business, it's actually almost you know, typically more cost effective often than what it is trying to get direct customers. You only pay if you get the booking, whereas you know, if you're kind of uh, you know, spending Facebook. into yeah. Google or Facebook, you're putting that money out without any guarantee of getting the customer. So mm-hmm. yeah, for me, it's thinking about um, a balanced kind of distribution, but recognizing that you know, the big guys are going hard direct without doubt. 
Yeah, it's it, it, you've, you've you've dumped a lot there, and I, I think we should oh, yes. probably, should probably unpack a few things. Um, so so starting at the top, understanding personas or understanding your customer, I think that's really important. Most businesses that I would work with, and that's typically where I start as well, uh, have more than one, and you would develop and deploy different marketing and and, and customer acquisition strategies yep. based on that persona. And I think a lot of tourism operators don't think about that, and and probably need to start there and start thinking about well, who are the people that I should be spending my money on to get uh, that, and and it's not always who you might think it is. So go in with an open mind. The second thing you've talked about is getting some kind of data and reporting set up. Uh, some sort of attribution modeling so you truly get an insight as to how much is it costing you across all of these different mediums, whether it's social, direct, uh, through third parties like travel agencies and things. And I mean, these are business, these are principles that apply not just to tourism operators, to every small business should be thinking like this. 100%. Uh, you know, and figuring out how much does it cost me to acquire a customer on Facebook versus a Google versus through a travel agent or, or a third party versus direct. And if you understand that number, then you can pretty quickly see where you're best to spend your money and, and, and where you're not. And mm-hmm. I think that the one part of the, the thing that surprises me every time and my big piece of advice along these lines is understanding what your average lifetime customer value is so that you know how much you can afford to spend so you know if it's actually making you money. You know, if if I know I can spend $1,000 to to acquire a customer because I'm going to still make another 1000 bucks on my uh, on my experience, well, I'm happy to spend $1,000. If I don't know that and I'm, and I'm spending 200 300 bucks a customer, I might be going, no, oh, that's expensive. But if I actually break it down and I look at it and go, oh, actually, fucking no, it's not. I'm still making a thousand dollars a customer on that on that particular uh, channel. So give me more. A gr- uh, really, really great point, Trevor. And um, you know, I'd say pretty much every business I've worked with to date thinks about the the transactional value of totally. um, yeah, the customer yeah. as well. It's Whereas, not, um, yeah, it's, it's the not average right. customer lifetime value. <laughs> like you know, yeah. I take an example. Customer. I work in a, in uh, an industrial sector in uh, warehouse storage, pallet racking, right? Right. And uh, you know, you can get a customer come in and spend thirty thousand uh, dollars in the first instance, but in two years' time, they come back and spend two hundred thousand dollars to rekit there, and then you know, another two years later, they'll spend another three hundred thousand. But actually, you know, again, this particular business I was working with hadn't actually given thought to that lifetime value of the customer mm-hmm. and treated each one on a transactional basis. As soon as you start going, that thirty thousand dollar customer is actually worth five hundred thousand dollars. It brings a completely different yeah. lens in terms of how you go about not only acquiring them, but how you then also service them and support them and retain them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas a lot of that kind of equation is often forgotten as part of um, the overall kind of customer lifetime as well. Totally, yeah. Uh, it's it's an interesting exercise and something that most small businesses don't think about. I mean, even if I was a you know a fast food operator um, selling burgers out of a out of a food truck, uh, you know, if 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 I actually take the time to put some kind of system in place where I can understand who my customers are and measure that return, I might find that it costs me you know, a thousand bucks to promote my appearance at a particular event. And I only get a hundred customers at that event. So I'm paying 10 bucks a customer. But what I don't probably, what I'm probably not thinking about is every time, you know, 50% of those customers see me at the next event, they come back because they had such a good experience the first time around. So even though it cost me a hundred bucks, whatever it was to get them the first time, I've actually managed to get two or three repeat <clears throat> from yeah, that one acquisition. So uh, no, and, really, really and, and I think it's huge in tourism, right? Because I, I imagine, and again, I'm, you're the expert here, mate, not me, but I imagine that that repeat 
customer is crucial in tourism, right? Like I've got you to come to Ruapehu this year from Australia and next year I'm, I'm pitching against Mount Hutt, Mount, Huff, Mount Hotham, um, possibly Canada. You know, I'm pitching against all these other international ski experiences and I want to try and block that person in so that they're coming back again for their ski experience next year. One of the observations, Trevor, is actually one of the weaknesses of the tourism industry, particularly the inbound tourism uh, industry in a, in a destination like New Zealand. It's typically a, a trip of a lifetime. You know, so your, your Europeans or your Americans uh, are coming down the Asian market. They're coming down and they're going, New Zealand's on my bucket list. I want to do it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of operators and a lot of the industry kind of get into that mindset of it being one and done. Mm-hmm. It's just one and done, right? And so I don't actually need to think about that. But you know, if I think about someone like um, actually Bayato, uh, the, the Backpacker Youth um, Adventure Travel Association, who represents of 18 to 35 year old group, they're actually doing a, a really interesting piece of work to try to understand the lifetime value if someone comes as a backpacker to new zealand you know when they're 2021 20, you know how often do they come back over the next 40 years do they come back in 20 years time when they get married mm-hmm. uh, and come here for a honeymoon and do they come back when they're kind of retired and almost there's no hard research around that but anecdotally there's a lot of support around that uh mm-hmm. that, that you know over an extended lifetime value is, is really really prevalent have a great experience when you come in through the youth market and you almost certainly become not only a repeat customer, but an ambassador. So that's also kind of an, another aspect to that lifetime value in terms of how do you get someone who then becomes an, uh, an advocate for your brand or your destination, whatever the case might be. We're actually just doing a chunk of work at Juicy at the moment, uh, thinking about how do we leverage the, the 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 excitement that a customer has, you know, European, you know, young German backpacker comes down. They they spend four, five, six weeks, uh, you know, have, traveling around New Zealand in a in a juicy camper van, have an awesome experience. They then head home. How do you leverage that? You know, reality, they're probably not going to come back to New Zealand in the short term. Uh, probably not going to be a handful of their mates. Probably will. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, some really inter- interesting opportunities in terms of how do you connect what you're doing from a direct acquisition strategy with, um, you know, word of mouth, ambassadors, social media, affiliate. You know, there's interesting kind of opportunities to stitch a whole new distribution strategy together around them. So thinking mm. differently about those sort of things, um, you create opportunities without doubt. And I, 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 in the back of my mind, I'm hearing this, the small business owner voice screaming at me going, yeah, that sounds great. If I was on, you know, if I had a staff of 10 and had, you know, plenty of budget and blah, blah, blah. But the reality is there's tools available now in the market that you can do this reasonably cheaply. You know, you could set up a MailChimp account, a couple of thousand people, it's not going to cost you much. And you can automate an email a year from now. You could automate an email five years from now and put it on autopilot. So, you know, with a little bit of, uh, you know, taking the time to really understand that journey and where the opportunities are and then thinking a little bit differently and saying, okay, well, you know, there's an opportunity for me here to leverage like you're doing now with Juicy. How do we we motivate that person who's had a great experience when they're having that great experience to tell all their fucking friends about it and and try and tap a bit of uh, future business out of it? So you you can build a strategy around that, find a tool that will help you do it cheaply, um, you know, hopefully automate it so that you don't have to keep revisiting it and uh, and you've suddenly built yourself a potential income stream that over the next decade is going to you know going to pay for itself. I, th- I think the key thing for a lot of small business owners, Trevor, is um, that kind of fear factor when you think about digital and technology. Mm. You know, a lot a lot of owners that I know kind of um, they've come through their sector, whatever that sector might be. They've mm-hmm. chosen to set up their own business. They're very very good at the expertise in that sector. But when it comes to either using technology smartly, particularly from a customer acquisition perspective. 
there's a big void and it's quite a scary void if you like mm. to look into uh but it doesn't need to be because to your point there are so many great tools uh that simplify um you know different 10 years ago when there were only kind of two or three big platforms you could lean on but now mm. there's so many SaaS based platforms they're not expensive they're monthly subscriptions Often it helps to get some advice in the first instance to sure. um, find the right tools and think about how they stitch together. Mm -hmm. um, but once they're set up, often you can actually almost put them on as autopilot um, with a little bit of support, fine tuning as you go along. Um, so I'd encourage anyone to you know, be brave and ask them, you know, reach out to people you know, like Trevor, uh, you know, for example, um, who can help you kind of stitch together um, the, an architecture drive or leverage some of those tools to you know, change the game. Um, I think about a, a little, uh, not a little, it's a, a forklift business that I've been doing some work with over the last couple of years. Really traditional business, right? Mm -hmm. um, owner operated, um, 15, 20 staff. Um, actually, I'll put a Northern Forklift. If you're looking for a, a forklift, uh, go and have a look at Northern Forklift. Shout right? out to Northern Forklift. <laughs> exactly. Great guys up there in uh, Glen, uh, Glen Eden. But um, no, a great example, right? In terms of, uh, you know, the owner, very, very intimidated by um, the idea of technology, um, websites, et cetera. And just with a little bit of focus, um, you know, in that case, we've, uh, we implemented a HubSpot platform, we've got an email database set up, we've got, you know, lead generation coming off the website, you know, so not a lot being, you know, it's not hard or complicated stuff, it just needs kind of someone to encourage you to step off the cliff a little bit and um, into the brave new world, and all of a sudden you actually transform your business quite a lot, and you start plugging those sort of platforms into other tools and, you know, into social media, et cetera, and you're, you're, you're away really quickly in terms of a smart digital customer acquisition strategy. There's a couple of things in that, I think, as well. You know, for me, it's it's now, and you probably had that same experience with Northern Forklifts, um, getting a lot of airtime on the podcast today, Northern Forklifts. Um, but, uh, you know, when you see a, a business do this digital transformation, which sounds like a very fucking scary concept, but really it's about putting some basic systems in place. Uh, you get this whole, oh, we should have been doing this years ago, right? Like it's not that scary and we, and we should have been doing it. In my mind, I, I challenge people to go one step higher. I'm scared of spending money on marketing without this infrastructure underneath me to make the most of that dollar, right? Mm. You know, if, if I look at businesses who are throwing a thousand bucks a month on Facebook ads, for example, and they don't have remarketing in place, they don't have a, an email capture for people who don't buy straight away and then they've got some sort of automated uh, nurture journey that's helping encourage them to make a decision because everybody's at different stages of that buyer's journey and you might be selling to somebody who's ready to buy but somebody who's kind of still in that planning stage might hit your website and if you don't encourage them and stay top of mind they're going to forget about you with the next exciting shiny thing that they look at online so i actually think it's it's important for businesses like most tourism operators definitely but you know you you northern forklifts as well you no, kind of have to have 100 agree with you i couldn't agree more i couldn't agree more like really couldn't agree more yeah as an example you take, take that um that industrial business uh enough of your time for them but um uh you know when you got involved uh, spending money on radio advertising right um uh they had a you know, great radio sales guy and, and radio ads are great right but in terms of trying to understand what value that created, uh, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't any measurement of it. You know, we put some platforms in place, uh, and you know, we kind of thought through the funnel. The the radio advertising now forms a part of the funnel, and we lean on that to bring it through. And last mm -hmm. month, we had forty three new leads, uh, if you like, for 
through that platform and, and the owner of the business was going, oh my God, I can't believe we're actually getting leads off money that we're spending on marketing, right? In, in the past, they've never had that. They've never been able to see it. They've never been able to see you know, who their repeat customers are, what you know, what customers are engaging, you know, who's opening newsletters and who should they be doing an outbound phone call to. Mm-hmm. Super simple. So I couldn't agree more with you, Trevor. Like the, yeah. you know, that old adage that you, know, you spend a dollar on marketing, 50% will work and 50% won't. Well, actually, uh, you know, if you put the right framework in place, uh, you you actually get to know what fifty percent is working. Whereas if you don't, you can't see it. And Still paying, yeah. yeah. You're throwing money out the window a little bit, yeah. to be honest with you. And, and and I talk about the bottom of the funnel being like five percent of your your total available market, right? So if you think there's a hundred people that are potential customers for my tourism experience, if I'm just saying, you know, here's the deal, grab it now, I'm really only talking to five people. There's 95 people who are like, well, I'm not ready to take the fucking deal now. I'm still thinking about whether I go to Nelson or whether I go to the North Island or the South Island or whether I can fit both. You know, they're doing their planning and figuring out which are the things that are must-dos and all of that sort of stuff. You, They've probably hit your website. Now you've got an opportunity to go, okay, I know you're coming. I know you're planning yeah. a trip. I don't know where you are in the, in the funnel, but I know you're planning a trip. So I'm going to make a little journey for you so that I don't lose you or lose the opportunity to have that conversation with you. And if you can grab an email address... Jesus. Oh, you know, yeah, yeah, straight into it, right? It's yeah. almost worth the price of the ad for the email address in some in some instances because they might not come this time. If they're an Australian visitor who comes to New Zealand a few times, you know, once every couple of years or whatever, you might get them next time or the time after that. Um, so I think that's very important. And, and the, the thing that we're talking about, I think, is this idea of a digital divide. And my listeners are probably getting sick and fucking tired of hearing me talk about this concept of a digital divide. But I'm really worried about this. I think, uh, and maybe I'm just, it's, it's, it's the paranoia that, that, that lies beneath uh, that keeps me awake at night. But I really feel like this is, we're, we're in a very, very, very fast moving digital environment right now with all of this Web3 metaverse shit that's coming down the pipeline. Um, that's going to disrupt this space massively. There are still small business owners that haven't really adjusted to the idea of using social media and using these uh, Web2 sort of platforms to help grow and drive their business. So they're already kind of out and there's a, there's a divide between those who are and those who aren't. And that's only going to be rapidly accelerating over the next five to 10 years, maybe even sooner than that. So I kind of feel like there's almost a, it's, it's almost at a critical level. If you're, if you're listening to this podcast and you don't have some kind of digital strategy and you're not investing in your, the digital elements of your business, I really think you're going to get left behind and you're going to find yourself in, 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 in real trouble over the next five years. Uh, listen, I couldn't agree more with you. Trevor, and the, and the market keeps moving, you know, the digital, and, and again, we, I, I fully agree with this notion of digital divide. Um, the key thing I'd stress is that it, it doesn't need to be something intimidating to look at. Mm. You know, like if you're on the other side of the, the divide, if you like, from where I'd normally sit, it's not something to be scared about. It, it's something to kind of actually walk into, lean into, and um, just, you know, reach out to people. There's so many people now uh, that, you know, I was actually down at um, Dunedin over the weekend at, at the University of Otago and had the opportunity to kind of visit the marketing department. Really, really interesting. Uh, I did my degree down there. there you know, clearly in those days, which a long time ago, uh, yeah, there was no mention of digital. Uh, it didn't exist, right? <laughs> Whereas, that was the days when you could just take the biggest ad out in the yellow pages, and uh, that was that was the strategy, wasn't it? Uh, I was going to say, I'm not sure we even had computers, but anyway, that's another story. <laughs> the, um, uh, so actually, the, the, 
the, the story there, right, is if I can embrace a digital uh, digital kind of framework, uh, then anyone can. Right. What was interesting was, you know, in excess of 50% of their students coming out have um, a digital, you know, sort of expertise, if you like. So, you know, the whole market is just changing. Like the, you know, the days of putting an ad in the yellow pages, you know, apologies to the guys at the yellow pages, you know, forget it. You've got to move on from that. It's not Well, they had to move on. That's, a, you know, if that's not a reminded. single... You know what the fuck is it? Oh, you know yeah. they're, they're not even yellow pages anymore. They call themselves yellow, mm -hmm. and they're a small business digital marketing agency. Yep. They're the buyers of of Google ads in the country. Yeah, that's right. So, so here's a business that's had to reinvent themselves because of this exact concept. I mean, if, if the yellow pages have had to do it, and they were marketing back in the day, you and I can remember a time when it literally was. If I've got the biggest ad in the yellow pages, I'm probably taking forty percent of the leads. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and there's a business that doesn't really, I mean, they talk about the print still being a valid, I don't really think it is. My, I can't my believe mom, they still print those things, to be honest. Yeah. I got one in the door the other day. It was like, what is this? I don't yeah. need any more doorstops. I think it's more offensive than anything else now getting a yellow pages in this day and age, you know, like yeah. getting that paper is like, what the hell? You've chopped out a whole bunch of trees or something. I'm just going to put straight back in the bin. Um, Here's I, one piece of advice I'd give to any small business owner that, that's looking to lean into this. Uh, is don't just go to a paid search agency and, and spend a thousand bucks. There's too many of them around that will take your thousand bucks uh, and or two thousand bucks, whatever they call five hundred bucks, and they'll spend it and they'll give you a report once a month, and you you won't see any noticeable value. Mm -hmm. Get someone to run alongside you to pose the questions, to pose the challenging questions mm -hmm. of those guys, and to hold them to account. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I've seen that way too often, totally. way too often, uh, whereby there's a number of these agencies that specialize, they target small, uh, you know, medium-sized businesses. They'll come and they'll do the big sales pitch and then they'll take the thousand bucks a month uh, and you'll see very little outcome for it. Uh, and quite frankly, a thousand bucks a month in the digital marketing space is not enough to shift the needle in no, no. any business anymore. You've actually got to get the foundations right. You've got to get the, you know, the structure in place, the foundations right, and, and actually have someone challenging on your behalf to hold these guys to account. Uh, mm -hmm. the, um, I think that's really, really valuable to do that. Yeah, I like. Um, I used to teach at, uh, at at Unitech as part of their digital marketing kind of bachelor degree, and uh, you know one of the things that I used to challenge everybody is do the Facebook Blueprint course. You know, just yeah. do it. It's free. It doesn't take that Good long. Point. It's not that hard. You don't need to be. There's not a whole lot of language that you won't understand. Like you know, the average digitally illiterate person can get their way through the Facebook Blueprint course, and just that alone will help un help you understand not only Facebook advertising, but digital marketing concepts as a whole. And you'll start to be able to talk the language, understand what these agencies are talking to you about. Um, you know, you, you talk to people about having that infrastructure in place and not, don't just go and grab an agency. I, I like to look at it a little bit deeper than that and go, if you talk to a social media agency, they're going to tell you that social media is the answer. If you talk to a search engine marketing agency, they're going to tell you Google ads are the answer. Agreed. So you've got to you've got to also start to understand what is my overall strategy and 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 people like yourself who are, are advisors in this digital transformation space are the right people to talk to because you don't give a shit whether they're advertising on one platform or another or whether they do one particular modality more than a, more than another it's about what's the right mix what's the right structure and framework where should where do our customers live where should we be talking to them and what sorts of conversations should we be having with them? And how do we measure the efficacy of all of this so we can see which levers we want to turn up and which, which ones we want to turn down? Yeah, listen, that, that's, you've, you've hit the nail on the head on that, to be honest. Yeah, I, um, I want to dive into, and, and uh, 
you know, this idea that's been in back of my mind these last couple of weeks, I've been thinking about getting you on the podcast and what we're going to talk about. And uh, I, I know it's a very new space and people haven't really thought about it yet. You know where I'm going with this. I no, I do. <laughs> um, but I want to talk about the idea of virtual tourism and where that is at the moment and, and, and what your experience with it has been so far, because I also think that this is something that, okay, we've scared these people badly enough that they're going, shit, I'm not advertising on social media and these guys are telling me I'm getting left behind as a result. We're now about to go into a conversation that's that's probably going to scare the shit out of them even more. But the reality is it's coming whether they like it or not. Um, so, you know, what's been your experience with the idea of virtual travel and virtual tourism? Yeah, super interesting question, Trevor. This has been something that's been floating around for probably the best part of the last 10 years and obviously become even more relevant in the last sort of 12, 24 months. Um, but um, I think that at the heart of it... The, there's been talk around actually kind of can you create a virtual tourism operator uh, and so people don't actually have to leave their home. But mm-hmm. I think at, at the heart of it, um, the idea of tourism is around the social connection uh, and you can't get that same level of social, your authentic social connection uh, through a virtual play. Now, having said that, I am clearly an older dude who probably uh, is, is a little more um, kind of um, cynical on that. But where I have seen virtual tourism used really well, uh, and again, I think it will increasingly accelerate, is around um, the sale, the selling process, if you like. Right. So Naitanahu Tourism, um, probably four years ago, five years ago, at uh, Trends, which is the New Zealand tra- uh, tourism industry show, where the international buyers come in to look at what they're going to put in their brochures the following year. I remember Naitahu had a, um, a virtual tourism experience, uh, which was amazing. It was really, everyone felt a bit sort of, everyone's hung over and then put these things on and go, oh, oh, oh this is... <laughs> this is <a> <laughs> did, that, did they have a few buckets in the corner just in case? <laughs> a little bit. But, this is um, day one thing, not a day two thing. But having said that, you know, um, uh, you're really great introduction to the experience to whet the appetite to then go and have the real experience. Things like motorhomes and, and camper vans, uh, again, you know, discussions, uh, you know, sort of explored how, you know, particularly for someone who's never been in a motorhome or a camper van, you know, to then go and book a four-week holiday in a camper van is a pretty big risk, right? Mm-hmm. So the ability to open that experience up and have a partial experience before then committing to having the real experience is a really interesting uh, play. I haven't, you know, I've seen some, you know, uh, operators, as I say, like Naitahu, um, uh, some of the Australian tourism boards have been doing the same things at a destinational level, mm-hmm. um, uh, doing some really, really interesting things. Um, augmented reality is the other interesting space in here, uh, Trevor, in terms of how you can use technology to amplify mm-hmm. and in destination experience. Um, I, I, uh, I was doing some work with um, uh, Rupert um, at uh, at. Oh, Craig, no, it's just, uh, just lost me uh, at Platter. That's right, Platter AR. They were doing some really cool things um, with the Ritz-Carlton in Singapore. Uh, and they had a, um, a whole massive art collection. And they'd created this AR tool to walk around. And you could actually kind of open up the art and get the history or the background to the art as you went around. So it added a huge amount of depth to the actual in-person experience. So, mm. listen, I'm, I'm um, really excited about how technology can add value to the experience. I don't think it replaces the experience. Definitely not. I'm, I'm with you. you. You know, the smell inside the Sistine oh. Chapel is not something oh. that you, you can you can replicate digitally, or maybe they can in the future. Yeah. Or, but, or, uh, or the smells <laughs> of the kids that you meet in the Masai Mara, for example. You, you could 
doing you know, uh, a virtual reality travel, but you're not going to have that spontaneous mm-hmm. uh, experience that becomes the sort of um, dinner table conversation, let's say, uh, when you get back, which ultimately is the currency of tourism. Yeah, yeah I, I, I really love where you've gone here with this augmented reality, um, augmenting the uh, the experience. And, and that's something I think tourism operators de- definitely need to be thinking about. I mean, we're working at the moment with Snapchat um, with their Lens product. Um, so, you know, you've, you've seen filters and lenses and things. That's not a new thing. Anybody who's got uh, an Instagram page and does a little bit of Instagram story work has seen plenty of filters in their time. Uh, but Snapchat have got this, they're going all in on augmented reality. That's their play at the moment. And they're building out some pretty amazing and pretty interesting um, tech around using Snapchat as a tool to augment certain experiences, real world experiences. And they're not crazy expensive. You know, you're talking a few yeah. grand to get something that would be an engagement or an augmented uh, or, or augmentation of your experience. Uh, so but the irony for me, right, is um, probably pre COVID uh, augmented reality was always challenging because no one knew how to you know, uh, sort of, trigger a QR code, whereas at least now everyone knows how to kind of trigger a QR code to you know, sort of fire up uh, an augmented reality experience. So there's some positives from the pandemic, uh, let's say. But- it's taken a long time for QR code technology to take root, hey? It wasn't until they yeah. made it a default thing in your camera where you just turn your camera on and show it a QR 100%. code and it figures it out. I remember back, and this is showing my age a little bit, but I remember when QR, co- QR codes first became a thing. It was about 2008, 2007, 2008. And I was running a record label at the time. And we, we thought that QR codes was going to take over everything because the iPhone had come along yeah, uh, right. and QR codes became a thing. And we thought we can embed a URL into this QR code thing and people can scan it and have an experience. And uh, the problem was, so we started, what, what we would do is we would, we'd have a band and we'd set up a, a, a website that just automatically played a, a track that we wanted to listen to. And we put the QR code on the poster so people could scan the QR code and they'd be listening to the band's music and make a decision right on the spot whether or not that was something they were into and that they, they, they want to come to the gig. It didn't work. It was a great idea, but it fell flat on its face because nobody knew how to, <laughs> how to scan yeah, a QR right. code. Uh, and it was a really complicated thing to do. You had to download a QR code app. You had to go in there and find it and get it all right and scan. It was way too much education. And sure. uh, you know, I think now uh, what's happening with QR codes, and that's again back to the Snapchat filter thing, and that's what we're looking at doing is we want to put QR codes on clothing so that when you oh, yeah. scan the QR code on the clothing, you get some sort of augmented story. reality experience. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the one thing, the, the one of the interesting insights that um, uh, that we've picked up, you know, really strongly coming through, is what tourists are looking for now, particularly in the youth market, but also kind of in, in you know throughout the board, is a more sense of purposeful travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, everyone's been locked down, um, everyone's reevaluated what's important to them, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, what we're hearing, particularly from European um, distributors who are sending people to this part of the world, is they're no longer just wanting to come down and uh, you know get on a bus and drink beers at, at sort of pubs and jump out of aeroplanes and, and have things tied around their, their legs and jump Sounds off bridges. Sounds like a great time to me, but <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I'm going, really? Okay. Yeah, what's wrong with you people? The, 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 the millennials these days are actually wanting something more authentic, ironically, uh, and this notion of purposeful travel becomes mm-hmm. really key, right? So they're, they're wanting to interact with local people. They're wanting to understand kind of cultural, uh, you know, indigenous culture, wherever they might be. Mm-hmm. They want to understand how 
they can contribute in a positive way um, to the environment, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So really all those elements, I, don't, I haven't really seen anyone delivering well into that space at the moment. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's where something like- It's a huge opportunity, right? Yeah. AR yeah. becomes really, really interesting in terms of how do you actually tell the stories, you know, bring the stories, let them inter you know, meet the characters, if you like, uh, you know, in a scalable way. Mm -hmm. So again, it'll be interesting to see who embraces those sorts of opportunities. I could imagine something like Rock or some kind of, you know, really strong indigenous uh, tourism experience would, would be a no-brainer for something oh, like that, right? That'd like, be awesome. awesome. I remember back in my day, I did a lot of traveling when I finished uni and, uh, you know, it was all about the lowly drinking planes. beers and jumping out of planes, right? It's all about just drinking beers and jumping out of planes. But if you did want to get a little bit more, a little bit deeper, you got the Lonely Planet. And so, sure. uh, you know, and I, and I know the Lonely Planet still exists. Big shout out to the Lonely Planet. Right. That, you know, many, many, many great experiences in my life have been from taking the time to read that little book. Here, here to that. You know, I think uh, this is the new wave of the Lonely Planet, right? And the individual tourism operator has an opportunity to tell a story that they might not be able to tell there and then. You know, if it's not a guided tourism experience, you've got the opportunity to allow people to discover a little bit more about, uh, you know, one of the one of the tourism operators. And, 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 you know, I'm trying not to shout too many things out, but Rotorua Canopy Tours was a business that I worked with a few Great years product. ago. And uh, amazing experience, uh, still rated the number one thing to do in Rotorua, which is the kind of tourism mecca of, of New Zealand. And, um, you know, they'd done an enormous amount of work on their particular piece of earth to, to get rid of the pest, to replant it with native trees. They, you know, it was they almost had to build the entire experience from scratch. And it's taken decades of work for the team down there to get it to where it is. And that's something that their guides kind of talk about. They do a little bit of an intro thing at the beginning and, and sort of mention it along the way. But again, here's this opportunity to tell that story and give people an understanding of the deeper part of, of what they're experiencing and connect with it a little bit more. Um, so Here's yeah. another angle, which I think is interesting, right, is um, the tourism, uh, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll focus on New Zealand on this instance, but tourism you know, globally, it could be anywhere. You know, what, what we've never done a good job on is connecting tourism to the wider economy, if that makes sense, right? So, Mm -hmm. You know, when that visitor comes through or they go up to Waiheke Island, for example, and they um, go to the restaurant, and they have a great uh, bottle of wine, for example. Mm -hmm. All we don't do is make it easy for that visitor to then subsequently kind of capture what that wine was and then get it delivered to their home when they get home in, in a couple of weeks mm -hmm. time. Or they might be tra traveling around the Golden Bays, uh, mm -hmm. if you like, and uh, you know, see a goat farm and have some goat cheese. You know, how interesting is it to try to create this whole circular economy where you can actually make it really easy for people to connect with the experiences and you know food, wine, uh, products that they're experiencing while they're traveling to then enable them to kind of keep that relationship going subsequently. Now, in New Zealand did that uh, on board with a wine club, for example. Mm -hmm. And that went really well, as I understand it. Uh, but um, you know, no one's done it at a broader level. Definitely, I think you've just—I uh, think you've just dropped a, a billion-dollar idea there, mate. Um, in all honesty, I do. Uh, you know, the idea that you can only take a couple of bottles of booze home with you—you can only take a limited amount. You probably brought most of your luggage. You've got to take it back home again. So you really are restricted as to what you can kind of take back with you. But if you make that an online e-com there and then love this cheese, love this wine, scan the code, order it, send it home. It's there when I get home. Fuck. That's a, that's a billion dollar industry right there. Uh, so how about mate, it? Uh, trivia if, uh, for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you heard that on this podcast, Dave and I want shares in that. that idea. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, good one. Um, 
So the last thing I wanted to kind of dive into, uh, which which is is a, a great precursor to here's another hour of podcast material. Uh, but the last thing I really want to kind of dive into is what you're seeing um, as the biggest opportunities. I mean, yes, there's a there's a, um, a mad kind of re renaissance of tourism happening, but where are the big opportunities? And, and, and my gut's telling me it's going to be he who finds the staff and gets that kind of work visa thing problem and thinking about that first is, is, is probably in a better position to win than others. But what are you seeing, mate? What are the big opportunities that our, uh, our local tourism operators should be thinking about right now? Yeah, well, really, really good question. I mean, firstly, it's getting through the next six months. Uh, cash flow is going to be still tight. Mm. Uh, balance sheets are still broken. Uh, mm. And you know, part of the challenge, you know, I've got the sort of, sort of notional kind of thought that the bigger going to get bigger there's going to be a lot of m a activity you know as companies struggle mm -hmm. to get the cash flow they've got to get more staff and more resources to deal with this wave coming through but mm -hmm. haven't yet got the cash flow to, to meet that you know typically the the you know, balances are paid when people start traveling so that's going to be a real challenge right so i think there will be more m a activity at the big end of town there's certainly plenty of private equity money floating around uh, looking at opportunities so in some ways uh, you know, i'd encourage smaller operators uh you know, who have an interesting product unique product play if they need capital go and look for it right don't try to struggle your way through you're better to be well capitalized at this point in time to come out stronger on the other side mm -hmm. um, and there are certainly opportunities around that i think the other piece is you know simplify your business uh spend the you know if you haven't already you know make sure you do it now because you, you only get one shot at this um businesses i've been involved with we really spent the last 12 18 months you know simplifying rate structures simplifying distribution processes simplifying trade distribution agreements uh you know, i think um you know one organization i was involved with they, i haven't actually calculated the total number but i'm reckoning there would have been in excess of 30 different variations of um, rate structures trade agreements payment terms with this different and opera uh, distribution channels and they just you can see how it happened they've just been laid and laid over time mm -hmm. and made it work but awful in the background from an administration perspective finance guys hated it they had a whole army of people in the finance team so we've ripped that right down and we're now down to four different kind of frameworks that we distribute into and really disciplined about saying no so take the opportunity to simplify the business and the other piece is think smartly about how you can do different you know, things differently so yeah we are in an, in an environment where accessing labor is going to be tough uh, really tough right so how can you use technology smarter yeah how mm. can you create access to flexible working um yeah again another business i'm involved with um we have looked at uh, we, we're not locked we're now offshoring um and found a, a partner in, in manila who's able to help us with some of the admin work that we previously had salespeople doing um, we can't recruit salespeople, so what do we do we actually try to find a way of making the existing resource we've got more efficient uh and two years ago three years ago we wouldn't have really been open to that sort of thought process mm. Um, things like chatbot, uh, yeah, we, um, uh, another business, um, we've just implemented a chatbot. That chatbot did, well, it was a solid, big, solid six-figure number last month uh, through the website. So, again, taking the pressure off the need to have uh, the people in the team. Uh, and we're 100% committed to having people in the team, uh, but the reality is you can't get enough of them as we come back. So, you know, be open-minded and challenge. Simplify and think about how you can do things differently, but all the while keeping a really strong focus on the customer and delivering what, you know, where you really, understanding where you're and how you add value to the customer and focusing on doing that. Uh, yeah. so a number of elements in there, um, Trevor, but um, simplify, um, think, you know, be open to kind of thinking differently, but ultimately keep really focused on what you're delivering to the customer and do it well. 
Yeah, I love that. I love the idea of of um, finding functions within a business that we can outsource. We've all got used to, to being in Zoom calls now and working from a virtual <laughs> scenario. What's the difference if that person's in a different time zone, a different country, if they've got the skills and they can do the job? And the other upside to that is uh, this idea of the gig economy, which has taken a massive yeah. shot in the arm over the last 12, 24, uh, where you get CPA-level accountants in underdeveloped countries who have the, you know, master's degrees in this shit and you're paying junior, um, the equivalent of a junior wage for them. So there are massive opportunities as well to bring in skills that you wouldn't normally be able to afford if you just think a little bit differently and open your mind to the idea that I might never meet this person. I mean, I've taken a, a, you know, I took a job during um, the pandemic and I didn't, it was, I think it was about three or four months before I actually met the rest of the team. Yeah, in person, and I mean they're all Auckland-based, but it was three months before we actually got together in the offices and, and shook each other's hands, you know. And I was like, "What's the difference now? If 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 we can do that, if that's sort of become a fairly normal kind of thing, we're doing interviews, we're we're, we're recruiting via Zoom, uh, we've got resources in different time zones, we've got resources that we've never met that are members of the team, you know. I I really love that idea of thinking a bit differently and I and uh, and and finding functions that. Um, you may be able to outsource and make the most of what resourcing you've got, whether it's reallocating the you know people within the business to doing different, more important customer-focused functions. Yeah, and, and you know, put aside any prejudices. You know, New Zealanders particularly you know, have, have strong views around it, right? But yeah. you know, I know a travel business that have um, you know working really closely with the Fijian labour force, and they're doing an amazing job, right? Um, the you know the business I was referring to earlier, uh, partnering with uh, a business in um, in Manila. The people that we've recruited up there are awesome. Like they are really committed, really dedicated, you know. And we've got them in the in the right space, adding value to us how we want them to add value to us. I'd have no hesitation at all, uh, kind of pushing down those, that pathway. Uh, mm. You know, again, don't don't let kind of um, you know preconceptions, if you like, uh, constrain your thinking because you'll yeah. you'll, you'll get uh, you'll lose opportunity. Totally. I've got a really good friend of mine um, who is probably listening to this right now. Um, and if he if he is, he knows who he is. Uh, he took a, a, a gamble and hired a, a, a VA, a virtual assistant, right. uh, to help him do more in his day. And, uh, and that person is in the Philippines as well, speaks English perfectly well. That person gets up and works a New Zealand nine to five yeah. day. Yeah. And, Which means uh, you're starting at four o'clock in the morning, right? Whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 like the difference that it's made to him, he, you know, he estimate for the for the money that he's that he that he pays this person, and he pays them pretty well by their standards, like more than what certainly more than what that person asked for, and they and, and and he's seen the value in it with to the point where he now pays that person very well. Uh, but the 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 efficiency that that VA has created in his life, he's able to, to sort of in, increase his own output by thirty percent, and right? so he's able to to do thirty percent more of the things that he's doing that are really shifting the needle in his business because he's handed over all of those administrative, organisational kind of functions to somebody in another country where English is their second language and the, and 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 paying a, a fraction of his hourly rate to get that work done. And, uh, and so he's seen an enormous benefit to, to the point where he's now, uh, you know, an ambassador or influencer for that particular organization. So that, that uh, VA came from an organization of VAs that, uh, okay. that have, a, have those sort of resources. So, so it, it, to me, that's just a, one little tiny example of the sorts of things that we're talking about. But yeah, I love the idea that if, uh, if Muhammad won't come to the mountain, maybe the mountain needs to go to Muhammad, right? 
<laughs> well said, Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and on that bombshell, um, <laughs> look, I uh, again, I, I, I love the fact that you've taken some time out of your busy schedule, Dave. I know you're running across a few different oceans at the moment and you've got more than enough work on your plate. So I do uh, sincerely appreciate you taking time out to talk to us today and share some of your wisdom, mate. I really enjoyed the chat. Uh, it's It sounds like it's a really, really positive time after a long, dark winter. Uh, it's now the sun's starting to come out on the tourism sector and I, I really hope that, uh, that that sun shines long and hard for those people because they have done it tough and uh, it's such an important part of, of our economy here in New Zealand and I'm sure in other parts of the world. It'll be great to hear kind of, um, you know, kind of different accents and cafes or in bars and what have you around the country again, or, you know, brings, mm. bring, you know, enriches the, you know, sort of experience, I think, uh, here as well. It's um, So, you know, we're super excited. It, it is exciting times. We've just got to keep navigating through, but um, it's, um, you know, bright lights uh, in terms of, uh, or the light at the end of the tunnel is getting brighter and brighter and brighter. So it's certainly exciting times. Yeah, and those guys uh, up in the islands, um, no doubt there. Oh, Desperate for a few tourism uh, tourists to head their way. Mate, uh, just for those people who have been listening to this conversation and would love to pick your brains a little bit deeper, how can they reach out to you? Uh, well, LinkedIn, uh, Dave Simmons, LinkedIn. That's a nice, easy one as well. Um, yeah, no, no problem at all. Great. Awesome, Dave. Appreciate you so much, mate. Thank you for joining cool, us. Pleasure. Absolute joy. And, uh, let's do it again. Absolutely. Cheers, mate. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, everybody. See you later. Bye.